I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 um, as we go throughout the text. As we do that, uh, uh, need to review just a little bit. Last, last Sunday night, we, we closed or we finished Mark 11. Um, since Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, some significant, dramatic events had taken place in his life. Um, he was greeted as a king when he went into the city at his triumphal entry. The very next day, he acted as the son of God would in purging the temple of corrupt worship. Of course, these two, two dramatic acts draw about the close scrutiny of the religious elite. You know, the ones who were supposed to be entrusted with the care of Israel from the hand of God, but who were better at sitting in judgment on the practices of the Messiah, Jesus. So the scrutiny comes. Last week we saw that there are six controversial exchanges that take place between Jesus and the religious elite in Jerusalem. They keep coming at Jesus. The end of chapter 11 and chapter 12, they keep coming in wave after wave of offensive attacks to trick him, to, to get him. And so uh, last week we saw that they came to Jesus at the end of chapter 11 and they wondered what or who gave Jesus the authority to do what he did in the temple. Jesus, however, is, is masterful and he, he outwits them. He, uh, he asks them a counter question that they refuse to answer, the chief priest scribes and the elders, they, they won't answer the question because they know it's going to get them in trouble. And so Jesus says, neither will I answer the question you gave me. So coming to chapter 12, today we're going to look at a parable that Jesus introduces that these leaders will soon realize is about them. It's a parable about the religious leaders, the religious elite, this coalition of religious forces who are supposed to be leading Jerusalem and Israel. In these verses, Jesus vividly demonstrates, Mark 12, 1 through 12, he vi vividly demonstrates that the religious elite have been bad leaders. Bad leaders. As I think about this, I was thinking about our current political climate in our country. Um, all it takes is listening to the latest debates, the scheming, the plotting, the lying, it's almost putrefying. And so, as followers of Jesus Christ, what do we do? We pray. We pray that God would grant a spirit of grace, that these people would come to know Jesus as their Savior, and, and we know that that would change everything for them, their perspective. But in our text, we will find leaders that are more sinister and twisted than any political leaders today. And so as we go through this parable, Jesus describes Jerusalem's leaders in two ways. He says they are like wicked tenants, verses 1 through 9, and they are like ignorant builders, verses 10 11. So that's the outline, that's how we'll work through the text. So I want to look first at how they're like wicked tenants, and we'll see the background that Jesus gives in verses 1 and 2. So look in your Bible at verses 1 and 2. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put up a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. 
Here in the, the background, or the introduction to this parable, Jesus starts by introducing four characters. And I think it's important for us to look at the four characters and to try to determine to whom or what are these characters uh, relating to, or what is Jesus getting to in this discussion he's having with the religious elite. And so the first character you see in the story is called the man of the vineyard. You see that in verse 1? The man. Later on in the story, he's going to be called the owner of the vineyard. And as we go through the the narrative, it will become obvious that the man of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard is God the Father. God the Father. That's going to be clear as we go through here. So God the Father is able, is working to provide a safe, fertile place. He plants a vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He digs a pit in the middle of it for a wine press. And he builds a tower, a watchtower in the vineyard. And so the owner, the man, is God the Father. But secondly, we come across the vineyard. And this to me is the trickiest thing to identify in the parable. But if you get this, it, I think it's maybe the most important thing to understand. So to understand who the, the vineyard relates to, we need to understand that there is a significant Old Testament text that when Jesus is teaching, I'm sure the Jewish audience would come to think of. And that is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Now, men and women, we're not going to take the time to go back to that text. You might look at it this week. But so when Jesus is describing this vineyard, and he says the owner is digging a pit, and he's building a wall, and he's, he's preparing the land, and he sets up a watchtower Jesus uses language that's used in Isaiah 5 in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so as these Jewish people are hearing this, they're going to think of that text in Isaiah 5. Now, unfortunately, many of us don't know about that text, so let me just tell you a little bit about the text. In uh, Isaiah 5, the prophet Isaiah talks about God digging Not the land, God clearing a vineyard, God planting it with seeds, God building a watchtower in it, and and clearing out land for a wine press. In Isaiah chapter 5, it becomes obvious as you read there that the vineyard in this famous text in the Old Testament is clearly the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah. When God says, I've done all of this stuff to prepare a vineyard for you, and they ask, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Judah, where is the fruit? Okay, so the vineyard in the Old Testament text is Jerusalem and Judah, the people of Israel. In our text, the the owner of the vineyard does the same things for the vineyard. He digs, he plants, he builds, he, he prepares a wine press. So Jesus is teaching people who would understand the vineyard to be Israel, God's people. So as we're going through this, I think that's so important. I think most of my life I misunderstood this parable. Okay, The vineyard is Israel. Okay, Now we keep going. The third character we come across are the tenants. The tenants. Tenants are, are hired farmers. They're not the owners of the land, but they work the land for the owner. Now, in light of all of the instruction in this text and everything around it, I think it's, it's very safe to say that the tenants are the religious leaders, the religious elite. You remember what I told you about this section? There are six stories in a row where Jesus is having controversy with the religious elite, the Sanhedrin, 
the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. So the tenants are them. As a matter of fact, you can see this clearly in our text. Look down at verse 12. I haven't read it yet, but Mark 12, 12. And they were seeking to arrest him. So the story's done. Parable's done. This is the end. They're seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. The end of the story, the religious leaders know, were the tenants. And they, they seek to seize him. So the tenants are... Religious teachers, there's one more character in the story so far that we've been introduced to, and it's, he's the servant. So the owner goes away in a far country. He's got these tenants working the land for him. And so he sends a servant. You see that? Verse 2, a servant. We find as we keep reading the text that the servant is one of many servants that he will send, a long line of servants that he will send to them. And so I would suggest that the servants in this narrative are the prophets that God sends to the religious leaders of Israel throughout history and time that they reject. And uh, I would have you consider with me one Old Testament text I just think makes this very clear. Jeremiah 5, 25 and 26. says, from the time of your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I have sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. Here Jeremiah is critiquing the children of Israel. And he says, God sent you his servants, the prophets, and you didn't listen. You didn't listen because you're stiff-necked. So these are the main characters in the parable. It's pretty easy, right, so far. Owner equals God. Vineyard equals Israel. Tenants, religious leaders, servants, they're the prophets. Okay, with that in mind, let's see how the tenants treat a line of servants that the owner sends to them in verses 3 through 5. So look down verse 3. It says, and they took him, that's the servant, they took the servant, the first one, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, the owner sends another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. This part of the narrative the, uh, starts with the owner sending a series of three servants to collect rent. But these tenants, who I think represent the religious elite in Israel throughout the history of time, these tenants, in the words of uh, a, a great former scholar by the name of C.H. Dodd, he said, the tenants pay their rent in blows. Pay the rent and blows. Their treatment of the servants that the owner keeps sending to collect rent from them gets progressively worse. Starts out with a beating, they send them back. The next one uh, is kind of a, a rare word. It's a word only used here in the Old Testament or New Testament to describe the fact that they inflicted a head wound on him. Okay, it's a worse form of beating. They inflict some sort of head wound on the second servant, and they, they publicly shame him. The third gets it even worse. They kill him. They kill him. So let's go through this text. Uh, I agree with one New Testament scholar, Ben Witherington. He writes, he describes it this way. He says, there is a crescendo of violence in this parable with this first servant beaten, the second wounded in the head and insulted, and the next one killed. 
And so you're, you're following in the parable, right? You got it so far? This owner, this gracious owner, he gives land to these tenants. He keeps sending servants, and things keep getting worse and worse. At the end of verse 5, there's a summary statement about how they treated more than just these three servants, but other prophets that God sent to Israel. He says, you know, some they beat, some they killed. I think it's, it's good to read the, the words of another anonymous author here. This one you should really pay attention to. It's the author of Hebrews. How does he describe this? At the end of the Hall of Faith chapter, he says it this way. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, or abused, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Describing some of the Old Testament prophets that were given to the children of Israel who were rejected by the religious elite, by the people who were to be pointing them to Yahweh, to God. And so, let's continue to go through this text. We see that the history of Israel reveals that the many witnesses that were sent to them and the many ways their leaders rejected those servants, the prophets. So the next thing you should be asking yourself about this story is, so what's the owner going to do? What's he going to do? Now, before I answer that question, let me ask you, what would you do? What would you do? I've heard horror stories about some tenants before. Some of you have even told me about people who are renting for you and how they're just like the, the worst renters you could possibly imagine. But how about a scenario like this? You send people to collect the rent and they beat them and they killed them. What would you do? This reminds me of a story I heard uh, this week, a preacher tell. It's about a woman who was a teacher in an eight-year-old class. And so she wanted to teach her class a little bit more about God and man. God is the maker and we as created beings. And so uh, she divided the, the class up into two groups and she gave them two large Lego boards. And she said, what I want you to do is I want you to, uh, to make a world. She gave them plenty of Legos, plenty of time, several hours. I want you to divide these two groups and I want you to make a world. So uh, these kids came up with people and animals and cars and trees and roads and houses and rivers. They did all this stuff. They designed their worlds. And then the teacher instructed them. She said, I want you to come up with rules as the maker of your world. Rules in which the people should behave and the animals should behave and everything go, going on in the, in the world. And so the kids came up with things like, well, people should live in peace. They should love each other. They should be kind to each other. And then she asked her children, these, these little eight-year-olds, she asked them, now, what would you do if your world decided that you as a maker don't exist and they start treating each other in terrible ways in whatever ways they want and so on? And that's when a little girl, little eight-year-old girl, girl who's normally very kind and shy, looked up with hate in her eyes and she said, we would rip their legs off. would rip their legs off. Okay. <laughs> well, fortunately, that's not how the owner responds. What does he do? Look at verse 6. The owner's last resort. He had still one other. A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, 
they will reject my son. Verse 6, we get to listen to the thoughts of the owner. And we can hear his great kindness and love in action. That's where this parable takes a familiar turn as you're reading it. The owner decides to send his beloved son. And when we hear those words, we should think, Mark 1, that's the last time you've heard those words, his beloved son. At the baptism of Jesus, God says, this is my beloved son. We might ask in this story, come to the story, what owner in his right mind would do this? They've already beaten and killed your servants. And that's where this familiar story is intended to point us to God's inexhaustible love, his unending love. One man described this one this way this, this week, his in, indefatigable He doesn't get fatigued in his love for us. We were singing this morning, and I I couldn't make it through some of the song. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. And in this text, we are, I think, in this parable to reflect upon the greatest gift that he gave us, his beloved son. He gave them to the wicked tenants. So in verse 7 and 8, we learn the thought processes of the religious elite. Look at verse 7. But those tenants, I just like how that is stated, but those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So the wicked tenants here, they think that they can kill the son so they can become the inheritors of the land. In other words, they think that they can act as if the owner doesn't exist. They think they can remove his son and be allowed to function as the owners themselves. I think their, their reasoning sounds very much like some reasoning I read this week in Romans, Romans 1. Listen to some of the way God describes the depraved people that God gives over to their own lusts in Romans 1. It says, those who suppress the truth, they hold it down. Those who, although they know God, Do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It gets worse. Those who exchange the truth of God for a lie and who do not see fit to even acknowledge God in their thinking. It's like these religious leaders. I got it. We'll kill the son and then it'll all be ours functioning like the fool in the Psalms who says, there is no God who can do whatever we want. And so the wicked tenants treat the son in a worse way than any of the other servants who've been sent. They kill him throw and throw him out of the vineyard. Take him, kill him, toss him out. Don't even give him a proper burial. That leads to the owner's final response in verse 9. The text asks this question. Look at verse 9. 
what will the owner of the vineyard do? Answer, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So here the owner acts decisively. He destroys him and gives the vineyard to others. It appears that the parable teaches that God will give the vineyard, Israel, to other rulers and leaders, but it doesn't tell us who, okay? And I don't think it's good to speculate. The leaders of Israel then are like wicked tenant farmers that God will replace. He destroys them to replace them. But that's not the only metaphor that Jesus gives here to picture this coalition of religious forces who are leading Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. In in verses 10 and 11, he describes them as ignorant builders. And I want to see that text with you as well. Look at verse 10. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Here Jesus quotes from a text that is, should be familiar to the Jewish people. I know it's familiar to them because two days before they were quoting a piece of this when they're singing about Jesus and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They're saying, blessed, Hosanna, uh, or Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying this to greet Jesus as a king as he comes into the city. But, but here, however, Jesus uses a part of Psalm 118 to talk about a rejected stone that becomes a headstone or capstone. That's how you could literally translate the words, headstone or capstone. Again, we won't go back to the psalm, but in Psalm 118, the psalmist is originally describing a stone, in my opinion, a stone that in the construction of Solomon's temple was passed over by the builders. It wasn't a good stone for the temple, for the foundation. But then eventually, when they came to the very end of the project, project, that rejected stone was used as the final capstone or headstone for the building. I like how, uh, again, one commentator described this. He said, in the psalmist context, the reference is to one of the stones meant for Solomon's temple, which was rejected in the construction of the sanctuary, but became a keystone in the porch's arch. Okay, so that's the illustration. You get these builders, they're getting stones, they're building up the temple, and they, they see this one stone, they see it again and again. It's no good. It can't use it as a foundation stone, but at the very end, they need one stone to pull it all together. The significant capstone or headstone. You see, you know that stone we kept rejecting, kept pushing aside? That would be like, wouldn't that be like perfect right here? Now, when Jesus uses this, he's not talking about a literal stone, but he's talking and describing his own rejection. His own rejection by these religious leaders. Yeah, insignificant. We don't need that. It won't be good for anything. The same stone that God then takes at his exaltation, and forms a new temple, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So it appears that in rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting the cornerstone of God's new temple. Without their acknowledgement, they were, they were doing the will of God, and it's marvelous. This amazing psalm and, and how it's quoted here, even their rejection of Jesus and how God will take him and form the capstone of the building, it's just marvelous. In God's eyes. 
So this wicked coalition of religious forces in Jerusalem are like foolish builders who reject as inferior what came to be the most important and prominent stone in God's new building, his son, Jesus. And that leads us to the end of the story in verse 12. Once you notice how the members of the religious leaders respond, uh, just one verse there, it says, and they were seeking to arrest him, this coalition forces, seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left and went away. So just a few things here. They're seeking to arrest him. They're seeking to seize him, you could translate it. But because they fear the people, they can't. Uh, they know the point of Jesus' parables about them, but they can't do anything here, so they just leave. I think what should not escape our notice here, however, is what this group desires. This group has learned nothing from the parable. They are completely hardened. Jesus just gave them a story about wicked tenants who want to take and kill the owner's son and they want to fulfill it right now. It's not too much later, as a matter of fact, that they find their moment, their golden opportunity, and they seal their role as the wicked tenants who kill God's beloved son. As we close here, I would say this about those tenants. Their biggest problem is that they did not listen to God and they rejected his son. So men and women, as we consider this parable and the parable of the wicked tenants who should have known better, they had religious advantage. They heard the Old Testament expounded time and time and time again. I want you to consider your own life and what you will do with God's son. God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for your sin. Will you believe in him and turn from your sin? And if you don't, what should God do with you? What should God do with you? You've cast aside his son. Choosing to live your life in any way you choose. By extension, you're like a wicked tenant who lives like God does not even exist or like he didn't send his son. What will he do? I'll tell you. The scriptures are clear. He will destroy you. Like these tenants. He will send you to hell forever and ever on the punishment of God. That's what he'll do. Well, my question is, what will you do? What will you do with the blessed Son of God? I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. As I was preparing for this sermon, I felt compelled by the Lord to give an invitation of sorts right in your, your chair. with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around the auditorium. I just want to scan it for a moment, and I want to see, are there some here today who would say, Pastor Brent, would you pray for me? I've never received Jesus. I've never believed in Jesus and repented of my sin. Would you pray for me? If that's you with no one else looking around, you say, I'm, I'm burdened. I read about these wicked tenants rejecting 
the son of the owner, and I, I know this is true of me. Perhaps there's a young person here who's heard all the things about Jesus, has never received him, never believed in him, repented of their sin. Maybe there's an older person here who finally makes sense. It finally makes sense. And you say, Pastor Brent, would you pray for me? I've never received Jesus. That is, I've never believed and repented of my sin. With no one else looking around, I will not embarrass you. Would you raise your hand so I could pray for you in just a moment? Just lift your hand up and I say, at this point, I've never received Jesus. Would you pray for me? As I look across the auditorium and those in the chapel as well in the overflow, if that's you, I'd encourage you to raise your hand to God. If that's you today, you say, would you pray for me? I've never done this. Let's look across the room and consider those hands. I would ask you, what would prevent you from this, at this very moment, praying silently to God, pouring your heart out to him, confessing your sin to him, and saying, I believe in your son, Jesus, who came and lived. It's been my prayer this week that you would decide to believe in Jesus and repent of your sin. What would prevent you from doing that now? I encourage you to do that. Men and women, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as I've read this story and studied it this week, my heart, too, has been burdened for the times when I treat God like I'm a wicked tenant. So maybe there are men and women in the room today who have been functionally living their life as if God doesn't even exist. Doing your own thing, living life however you want, and not thinking about the faithfulness of God. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father. I love the next verse. Pardon for sin and a peace that endures. As men and women, there are perhaps some within our own body who know Jesus is their Savior, who in many ways are functioning like wicked tenants. We sit in judgment over the way other Christians live their life. They're not doing everything exactly right. We sit in judgment about how they do this or that or this or that, but we're not really doing much for Christ as well. It's my prayer that God will burden our hearts and allow us to be people who embrace the Son and live that way. Let's pray together. Father, as I consider this parable, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for what we learn about Jesus. Lord, there are men and women under the sound of my voice at this moment who are not followers of Jesus. We're like the tenants. They reject the Son. They want to live like owners themselves. They want ownership of their own life and ideals and pursuits. I pray that the Spirit would convict them. May they see that they have never accepted your gift of salvation through the Son, Jesus Christ. And would they repent of their sin, I pray. Dear Father, do this for the honor and glory of your own name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.